Hi everyone, this is Terry Brooks, and I have just enjoyed a good 45 minutes on the great, big, beautiful podcast. When I'm not writing for money, I'm writing because I like to write. I just like to write. Um, So the output, the output's pretty congenial, actually. It's (laughs) like, you know, it's like you write a book a year and and basically spend the rest of the time, you know, shooting aliens and, you know, and video games. Um, And uh, so that, that wasn't my concern. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. This is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast, Facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast, Twitter at the GBB Podcast, and anywhere you get your podcasts. There's a lot of pod- saying podcast a lot in a row. It's a lot of podcasting right there. <laughs> podcast. Po- we should just take it under the name. We're just the Great Big Beautiful. <laughs> like as a collective. We're yeah, the beautiful. Lo- uh, like fill in the blank. Yeah, exactly. We are. Yeah, I like that. I mean, that. they they, I like they can that. guess what that what it means, and we won't even tell them. <laughs> you don't even need to know. It could be, you know, any. It could have a different meaning for every person, and depending on how you like to finish that thought. <laughs> All right. So before we came on, you were messaging me, and we have another. What depending on how much you like to listen to our podcast, we have something cool coming up in May. We're going to be going to two a week again. Is that what we were talking about? Did we confirm it? We are. Um, <laughs> Uh, you just did, I think. I just did. There we go. Official <laughs> announcement. <laughs> we, we've gotten ourselves into a little bit of a backlog again, which is not a bad problem to have. Um, and I mentioned this before uh, when we were going to a week for a while. It's I don't like to have, you know, when people come on, especially if they have something to promote and we talk about that, I don't want it to be like four months later we, we released episode and then it's like <laughs> not a very timely discussion anymore. Um and so, yeah, I think right now it's just for the month of May. It's we'll see how um, how many more get lined up and, and recorded between now and then. Um, but I think for the month of May, we'll be going back to two a week just to sort of clear out the uh, the queue for for now. I like to think that there's somebody listening right now that like fist pumped. They're like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, and then they went and tweeted about it and told two a week guys in May. Check it out. <laughs> so we. We had a guest host this week, Jamie. We um, did. Shiri Sondheimer was, is back on the epi- on, on the uh, the show. Um, we talked to John Scalzi this week, and she's a super fan, as am I. And uh, she jumped at the chance to be able to to sit in on the conversation and chat with him. Um, unfortunately, she couldn't be here at this moment. She's off doing something else that's um, equally fun. Uh, I'm not going to sort of spoil her surprise, but if you if you read Geek Mom or Geek Dad um, this week, you should be able to figure out where she was if you look for her byline. Um, but yeah, so we sat down. We talked to John Scalzi. Last month, he had a new book out called The Collapsing Empire. Um, which we did, we talk about it a little bit, but it had this roaring out of the gate success. Um, 
if you're unfamiliar with Scalzi, if you don't read science fiction um, that much, like new science fiction, he sort of burst onto the scene uh, in 2005-ish with Old Man's War, um, which eventually grew into a six-book series, and I think he wrote, a, I don't know how many, several short stories that went along with the same series, same same universe. Um, three of those six, I think, were nominated for the Hugo. Um, so they're, you know, you know, nothing to poo-poo. Uh, and then he wrote Red Shirts, which most people, if you've, if you've only read one of Scalzi's books or are familiar with only one or two of his books, you probably are aware of Red Shirts. Red Shirts sort of takes the Star Trek conceit of, you know, the Red Shirts who always die, that, that the whole, the whole gag of Star Trek. Um, and it's sort of, it, 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 puts a really really interesting twist on it and i'm not gonna if you don't know what the book what the twist is i'm not gonna ruin it for you uh it's not like an end of the book twist you know it, it comes in i think the first half you figure out what that twist is but just the way that um he tells that story and brings something new to that idea is really really fascinating and that book actually won the hugo um so we the the collapsing empire came out last month it's uh first book in what's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a series it's a new universe it's phenomenal it's i would really really recommend it if you like his work if you like speculative fiction definitely give it give it a shot it's an amazing book um he uh another thing that i should probably note is that a couple of years ago his his publisher which is tora books he sort of um caused some ripples with this unprecedented book deal he got with them. Um, most writers, you know, I, I'm not going to, I don't know the industry that well, but most writers, if they get a book deal, it's going to be for a, a couple books or for a trilogy or for a, a series of, of books or something like that. He got a 13 book, 10 year deal with Tor, <laughs> which was unprecedented. Yeah, exactly. It right? like a major so league it's like baseball that's, contract. <laughs> it's it, it almost was <laughs> and it's uh it's it's job security if ever there was one but that's you know you think about it that's 13 books over 10 years that's a lot of writing he's got to live up mm-hmm. to but that's just how much faith tour has in him and his ability to sell books um and tell compelling stories so um we have a great conversation we talk about the new book we talk about some of the old books we talk about um, you know, whether that book deal sort of brought any pressure to his writing approach, whether, you know, whether it put an added, how much of an added weight it, it put on him. Um, we talk about the Joko cruise, but he was on the cruise, um, as was I, I believe I've mentioned that. Um, and, uh, you know, we talk about some of the stuff he did there and how important it is for writers, even professional writers to sort of have an outlet amongst one another where they can, you know, share the struggles that they have or the hardships that they face, you know, in, in, in writing and being able to be creative on a daily basis. Awesome. So that, that's not, I can't wait to listen to it. I'm going to go listen to it now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. I say that like I'm, I don't like our podcast enough to listen to it. Well, I'm going to go listen to this one. Right, we're going to go play this episode for you, that interview right now. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Uh, it's awesome to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, first of all, I have to give you a big congratulations on the amazing out-of-the-gate success that you've had with The Collapsing Empire. Um, I understand that it has broken all sorts of records for you in terms of sales. Is that right? 
That's correct. Uh, it is the first week sales are the largest of uh, any book that I've had. Um, it's done very well uh, in uh, hardcover and ebook and audio. It's actually the number two uh, audio book on audible.com this week. And that's for all books, not just uh, science fiction books. Uh, on BookScan, uh, it's apparently the number one uh, hardcover science fiction book and the number 17 uh, hardcover book in uh, the country at the moment. Um, and it was number 25 on the USA Today bestseller list. We didn't get on the New York Times bestseller list because who knows why. Uh, but uh, but everything else but has still, yeah. actually checked out. That's, yeah. that's so we pretty can't amazing. Complain. No, I, that's that's pretty awesome. I have two kids and two jobs, and I read it in two days. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, good. That was the that was the point. One of the things that we really want to do uh, with uh, the books in general, but specifically with Collapsing Empire, because it was the first book in this really long contract I have with Tor, is we wanted something that people could get in right away, and that they really just wanted to flip the pages to find out what happens next. So. Uh, the fact that that uh, sounds like it worked the way uh, it wanted to uh, makes me very happy. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's funny. I was uh, many of your books are just are very fast reads, which is great because I'm not a fast reader in general. But I find that you know I can sit down like two three sittings and just and just kind of clear through one of the books. And every time I finish one, it makes me want to just go find more. And when I was doing a little bit of reading, um, I, I saw a quote from Tor, and they you know, it was actually about that the the agreement that you have, and they were saying, well, this makes a whole lot of sense because one of the things that we found with readers is that um, new readers to John Scalzi read one of his books and then want to just devour everything else that he's written, so that you know your backlist has a really strong showing, and I. I wonder why that is, and I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about that, but that's not. It, it made so much sense when I read that because I said, "Yeah, it's exactly how I approached it." Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that genre in general, and it doesn't matter if it's science fiction or romance or whatever genre. There's kind of a bar for entry where people go, "Oh, I don't read science fiction, or I don't read fantasy, or I don't read romance, or I don't read western." So you have to overcome that initial reluctance, no matter what. Um, but once you do that uh, and people have what's an enjoyable experience for a book, um, then they they learn to trust the author. They're like, well, I want to go find this. This is work for me. Yeah. Let me go do this again. Um, one of the things I do, and I've talked about this before, is that when I'm writing a book, um, I think about my mother-in-law, Dora. And she is basically middle America to the core. She doesn't usually read science fiction, but she's going to read my stuff because I'm her son-in-law and she loves me. So <laughs> what I do is while I'm writing all these things that I'm writing about, I keep Dora in my mind. She's not my ideal reader, but she is the person that I use as the test of. Can I write this so that she understands it, has a good time with it, and can continue on with the story while at the same time doing everything else that I want to do with the science and with the plot and so on and so forth. And if I can accomplish both, if I can keep Dora in mind while still keeping to what I want to say in the story, um, then basically means it's open to anyone so that they're, that the books are accessible. Uh, and I think people like that. I think people like um, books that they uh, read and they get that they can get them and that they don't feel like they're being talked down to or that they're missing out on the joke. 
Um, and so, um, and I think that's why once people read the things, they want to go read the other ones because yeah. they feel confident that they're going to be able to follow it no matter what happens. Yeah. Um, I, I saw that uh, the TV rights for the new book have already been snatched up. Was, was that the fastest that rights have been picked up for one of the books, one of your books? Well, um, for for books that are actually in the process of being published, yes. I actually have an option for a uh, book that I haven't written yet, um, but we're already it's already being developed for TV, and I can't talk anything about it other than the fact that, that's, that it sort yeah. of exists. Um, but uh, that was kind of amusing to me. They're like, what are you working on? And I said, well, I have this idea for a story. They're like, that's a great idea. We'll we're going to take it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like... Woo-hoo. Well, that shows a lot um, of faith in you, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the uh, certainly uh, we, my uh, my agent Joel Gottler, uh, along with Ethan Ellenberg, who's my literary agent, um, you know, we shopped it around. People people were asking about it before it came out. Once the book uh, announcement was made that there was a new book coming out, people started saying, "Hey, can we take a look at it?" Uh, so we sent the final manuscript when it was done. And uh, we uh, started getting inquiries about it. And uh, eventually we uh, talked with the folks at Working Title um, and were super impressed with them and super impressed with uh, everything that they asked about the book. I mean, they really sort of got it. Um, and so we felt like that was the place to yeah. place our baby. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you, uh, are, are you one to sort of play the casting game in your head or do you just not get that invested until, you, until it's really a reality? Right. And I think you've made a point there, you know, uh, getting invested before it's really a reality. Um, the thing about uh, TV and film options is once they've been optioned, you know, you have the announcement. And you're like, all right, it's going to be a TV series or all right, it's going to be a film. And the answer is no, it's probably not. Yeah. Um, for every hundred things that, that get optioned, maybe one uh, even makes it through its option period. Uh, to have a screenwriter attached or a producer attached. Um, and then it actually has to go through the long process of, you know, the screenplay being approved by everybody and then getting uh, getting to a point where a studio or will look at it or someone like Netflix will look at it and then maybe a pilot and then getting approved. And there's just so many places that it can fall down. Yeah. Um, and so the very first time I ever got anything option, I was like, this is awesome. It's going to happen. It's going to be super <laughs> cool. And these days I'm like, cool, it's been optioned. Free money. Yeah. Um, and, then, <laughs> and then other than that, just sort of uh, kind of holding off on the excitement. Yeah. I don't suggest that I'm not happy when things do get optioned, but it does become the reality of, well, you know, we'll, we will see what happens yeah. from here. So it's in that particular road. case, it's a you, long road. So in you, that case, yeah, I tend to hold off on, on casting uh, you know, in my brain until we're further along that it actually becomes something we have to think about. Exactly. When, you, when stuff does get optioned and you are thinking about it, do you, in your head, would you prefer a direct translation or more of an adaptation? Well, I think no matter what, and this is uh, me talking as someone who has a history as a film critic and... Um, has been following the business in a professional sense literally since, you know, the early 90s. Um, I think if you option uh, a work of yours without the understanding that it is absolutely going to be adapted and changed, um, then you are kind of deluding yourself. 
Um, a novel is not a, a TV series. A novel is not a movie. There's going to have to be uh, expansion, compression, things that you might have put in uh, that you didn't have time for might get back in, or they may just add stuff um, and make it a you know an addition to what you've already done. And you have to understand that that's going to happen, and you have to be open to the fact that where you were previously completely in control of your universe, now you're you are a collaborator, and you're not even the primary collaborator anymore, right? Because the directors and the producers uh, and the screenwriter that they'll get uh, if the, they don't have you do it, which they probably won't because you haven't written a screenplay before. Uh, <laughs> you put that all together, um, and you know it becomes something that's very different. Now, what you hope for and what you do prior to saying yes is you try to define as much as possible whether the people who want to option the thing are actually interested in the property itself um, and want to develop it in a way that is resembles what you've already done or if they want to go in a completely different direction and they just you know want the title or something like that and in either case it could be fine but you have to be aware um, like I said in the case of uh, working title who we're who we were talking with with um, the collapsing empire uh, the producers I spoke to um, really asked cogent uh, questions about the you know the the book and everybody was on the same page of if this gets made into a TV series we'll have 10 to 13 you know episodes or whatever um, there are things that we will have to deal with when we get there but um, everybody was happy with the shape of things as they as they currently were so in that case, I feel, like again, I feel super confident that uh, whatever comes out of that, uh, if something comes out of it, uh, the people who love the book will definitely recognize uh, the TV series as well. That's great. Um, I know I could probably find this answer by listening to the audiobook of Collapsing Empire, but I was wondering if you could help me. Your preferred mm -hmm. pronunciation for no Hamapatan, I think I stumbled over it every single time in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well that is a that is actually a, a name that i made up it doesn't have uh a particular uh real world antecedent uh -huh. um, i was thinking uh basically uh a family that was a combination of possibly japanese and malaysian at you know way back when mm -hmm. uh so i usually say nohama payton oh, okay but uh you know, one of the things that we that they did when they were doing the audiobook is they sent me a document that was like four or five pages long, which had every single name and every single uh, planet name and so on and so forth. I'm like, how do you pronounce this? Tell us because we want to get it right. Because now it, that it's out in an audiobook, sort of the audiobook is canonical in terms of what is uh, the pronunciation. Right. So I gave them as much information as I can. Um, I actually haven't listened to the audiobook yet, simply because I've been on tour and been doing other stuff. So, but I've listened to a couple snippets here and there, and of course, obviously, you know, I've I've heard Will do my stuff before. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that he's whatever pronunciation he came out with, I think it'll probably be fine. I'm sure that there are a couple that are rooted in the real world that uh, people who are. Uh, natives to the language from which they're derived will say, you know, that's not the right pronunciation, mm -hmm. to which the response would possibly be, well, yeah, but it takes place 1,500 years in the future, and the Earth is not part of the conversation anymore. Yeah. There, there's been a vowel shift. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of of the audiobook, and you, know, you mentioned you had Will Wheaton narrating, something interesting sure. that I've uh, heard you say is that you like to have Will read your books because the natural cadence of his speaking voice is perfectly in sync with the way that you think. Um, so it's almost like you hear his voice while you're writing. Is that true? Well, no, I don't think that that's absolutely accurate. And I think that Will is perfectly happy with the idea that he's not like sitting in my head narrating it. Every single <laughs> thing um, but what is true is that Will and I um, are very similar uh, in terms of uh, the way that we use language. We grew up in the same area. We grew up in Southern California. Uh, we grew up, uh, we're about the same age. He's a couple of years younger than I am. Uh, and his intonations and the way that he speaks and the way that language comes out of his uh, mouth and head are very similar to mine. Uh, I was actually I was actually reading on the Joko cruise. I was doing a, a reading. Um, and as I was reading it, I was struck by just how much of the beats sounded similar to how I expected Will to actually yeah. do them when he did them. Um, so basically what I'd say, say to people, it's not that he lives in my head, but he sounds like I would sound if I narrated the books uh, except better because he's a professional actor. Right. You know that that is his job. His job is um, performing words, and my job is writing words. Um, so as far as it goes, um, you know, when he reads it, it is very close to how I would read it, um, except better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I had to smile when I was reading because you mentioned this. You know that there are real world antecedents for some of the names and the pronunciations and the places. Um, but when you mentioned, and it was just in passing, but when you mentioned Cardinia's um, grandmother, Emperor Zetian, um, which would mm -hmm. have made her, with her surname, would have made her Wu Zetian. And if you're familiar at all with Chinese history, that's a very famous figure. Um, and so, it, I mean, I caught it, but I'm wondering, you know, how many other of these little, quote unquote, you know, like Easter eggs do you scatter throughout your book that are just there for people if they catch them? Great. If they don't, eh, it's OK. Yeah, no, um, there are definitely Easter eggs there. That was one of them. So well done you. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I that I wanted to do in a, in a sort of subtle way uh, with the uh, with the interdependency is make the point that this is a uh, what we would currently describe as a very diverse multicultural um, universe. The people in power are not necessarily the people that we see in power, uh, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives, and uh, that it is 1,500 years in the future, um, and so a lot of this stuff um, is just part of a shared culture rather than, you know, oh, they come from over here or they come from over there uh, or whatever. So that diversity... Uh, I wanted to reflect it in place names and the names of people and the names of ancestors and so on and so forth. Uh, so hopefully, and and like I said, the the way to make sure that uh, everybody hates you is to hit them over the head with that sort of stuff. Um, but for but if you put it in there and you don't make a big de deal about it, yeah. um, then you can do a lot. It's sort of like how in Lock In, um, I had a I had a character, uh, the main character, the protagonist, the gender was never specified. Uh, and it took a, a while for people to realize that uh, Chris was biracial as well, um, simply because that was information in the story, but I didn't put myself up on a soapbox and, and, and make a big deal out of it. Yeah. Nevertheless, it was there. Nevertheless, it was uh, a central part of the story. Um, so you kind of, uh, if, you're, if you're working at it, 
uh, hopefully, hopefully, um, you can thread that needle uh, and make uh, the world that you build the worlds that you would want to see. Yeah. Science fiction um, in general seems to be a really good place, or maybe it's just that the authors who are making this push seem to be writing science fiction, but it seems that um, it, 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 the discussions of diversity in fiction that we're having are mostly stemming out of science fiction or genre books. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, why is science fiction such a good genre to make that push, to make that that um, that diversity normal? And we're not going to make a big deal about it. That's just how it is. Well, I mean, I think we need to be clear. I mean, science fiction, especially over the last few years, had a big blow up mm-hmm. um, about uh, diversity and inclusion and putting uh, into... Uh, the literature, you know, the, the worlds that, you know, uh, people want to see. I wouldn't necessarily say that that we as a genre or we as writers are getting it 100 uh, percent correct all the time. So as much as I would like to pat myself and others on the back for this, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, there is still there's still work to be done. But the fact is, is that um, science fiction uh deals with the future. It deals with speculation. It's, it is a perfect place to say in the future, these things are, you know, these things are important, but these things aren't important. Or These arguments have been settled um, and these arguments aren't even a question anymore. Right. Um, so if you want to do that, um, it has the ability uh, to accommodate it. Now, at the same time, if you wanted to just do um, science fiction that was only white, only straight, only male, and some people do, um, you could do that too, and that's fine. It has space for that as well. But uh, I think I think the fact that right now we have so many writers um, who are not coming from where the typical golden age science fiction authors were coming from. I mean, you think of the people who uh, wrote fantastic writers but they were all, you know, uh, a lot of them were white and they were straight and they were male and they were engineers or scientists. Right. Uh, and uh, all of that was fine. Um, but uh, it was a very specific point of view with a very specific tone and a very specific intent. Um, the fact that we have uh, people like Nora Jemison or Alyssa Wong or Charlie Jane uh, uh, and just who are coming in from completely different angles doing completely different things with uh, the genre uh, is something that strengthens us rather than distracts from what science fiction should be. Science fiction should be whatever it is the people who write it want it to be. And I'm super excited about being, you know, someone who is writing today because I look at uh, people like Nora or Charlie Jane Andrews and I see them as colleagues and people who are pushing me as a writer to be better. Mm-hmm. And to imagine better universes than I might uh, if uh, everybody else who was writing in the genre looked at and acted and thought like I did. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because um, I interviewed Mike Cole last week and he said exactly the same thing and cited all of the same authors. <laughs> so right, it's well. The thing is, is you know, Nora is coming off of a uh, you know a very nice uh, uh, role, particularly with. Uh, she just won the Hugo. Charlie Jane, she's uh, was nominated nominated for a uh, Nebula this year, if memory serves. Uh, and Alyssa just also uh, recently uh, won herself a Nebula. So uh, they are 
they are hot authors right now, and so, and they're also ones that um, you know pop to mind. The you know, but the thing is, is that they are the the franchise players on a team uh, whose bench is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, I could I could mention Bo Bolander, I could uh, mention uh, Lynn and Michael Thomas, I could mention. Uh, a, you know, a whole bunch of people. If, if my brain wasn't fried from touring at the moment, uh, <laughs> but you know, the simple fact of the matter is, uh, where you previously could have only mentioned uh, a couple of people uh, who are not the you know the typical white straight uh, folks uh, who were in the club of you know uh, current you know uh, current A list folks or are you know in in the pantheon so to speak. Um, what we're going to see is uh, when people are writing the history of science fiction uh, from 2000 to 2025, I suspect, um, that it's going to look a lot different. It is going to look a lot more diverse. Um, you know, the fact that right now, probably the hottest person or the most significant person in science fiction is Ted Chiang, because mm -hmm. Arrival mm -hmm. has really opened up the, the mainstream uh, to his work is one uh, tremendously exciting uh, from a uh, reading point of view because all of his stuff is so good. I remember I came in second place to him in a locust short story poll, and I was like, "Woohoo! I won!" <laughs> because it was going up against Ted Chiang, um, but it also is it also signals the point that where we are um, today is not necessarily where we were. Um, and hopefully that we continue so that uh, everybody who wants to be part of the conversation of what science fiction and fantasy is uh, gets to be. Now, and, and this is the point where I also point out that I am not the perfect uh, messenger for any of this, you know, since so much of what I write and what I do um, is old school and, and uh, that I am, you know, a perfect example of what everybody has expected science fiction to look like for years and years. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, speaking as someone who's, who's writing, who's looking at colleagues, and as someone who's reading, I am super, uh, super excited and super happy to be writing and reading in the genre today because I think it's as good as it's ever been, uh, and I think it's only going to get better from here. And then switching from writers to your characters a little bit um, from Collapsing Empire, tell us a little bit about uh, Kiva and Huma Lagos and where they came from, because they're fantastic. Oh, well, I really love Kiva. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and importantly, uh, when I was writing her, uh, my wife, who is my, my first reader, and who, frankly... Uh, will let me know when I'm not doing things correctly because she strongly believes that uh, she loves me too much to let me screw up. Um, she was just very much of, yes, Kiva, she is awesome. Keep writing her the way that you're writing her. And the thing about Kiva is um, I think it just comes out of partly knowing uh, in my own life experience um, a, a lot of uh, – a lot of women who are like her, who are, you know, very much of, you know what, uh, I'm done with your, I'm done with your crap. Uh, I have things to do. Um, I'm going to do them and you are going to come along with me. That's great. Um, if you're not, then I'm going to run you over and that's going to be fine too, because I got things to do. Uh, 
Uh, my wife is one of those people. I'm not saying that Kiva is uh, uh, inspired directly by her, but she has that same sort of um, attitude uh, in a little bit of a way. Um, and this is the first time I've actually mentioned it, but it's worth saying. Um, very tiny bit uh, modeled over the way that I feel Nora Jamison handles the entire flood of hate that's been brought to her. Like Nora's a real person and has to deal with real real crap and everything else like that. Um, but one of the things that, I, that I've admired about her for years and years is that she's planted her flag, you know, uh, in the ground and said, this is where I am and you are going to have to um, accept that I'm here and that I'm not going to move for you. Um, and I and I definitely don't want to make a comparison between the real world effects that Nora has to deal with, you know, because the real world is not as uh, nicely tied up uh, as my world is. But the fact that she has been someone who has planted that flag just absolutely uh, inspired me. So there is a tiny bit of uh, Nora Jemison's DNA. Uh, and that character, along with a tiny bit of my wife's DNA and a tiny bit of the DNA of all the women I know who are not here for your crap, you know. Uh, and one of the things that I, I, I sincerely hoped that I was able to get across was um, that uh, Kiva, although she's an idealized character, um, I don't think she's a fantasy character. I think that she is... Uh, someone who can and should exist in the real world. She's not necessarily the nicest person. I don't know that you would necessarily want to, like, be her friend all the time. I, I made this mention somewhere else that she's the sort of uh, person that if you called her on the phone or she called you on the phone, you would look at her phone number like popping up on your screen and going, oh, do I really have <laughs> Do I have the time? Right? Uh, and if you didn't answer, she would immediately text you and say, I know you're there. Pick up the damn phone. <laughs> Um, but, you know, the thing is, is that she's unapologetic. She is, you know, knows what she wants and she wants to go and get it. And, uh, if I were writing the character as a male character or as a dude, um, no one would think about it twice. The fact that people are still saying, you know, Kiva, she's super awesome. And the fact that I'm, you know, I agree, Kiva's super awesome, um, says that there's still, you know, that little bit of disparity there. So I'm glad that she's there you know, um, planting the flag uh, in the future world and saying, you know, I've got things to do, you know, come with me or get rolled over. So I, I see her and Christian Avasarala starting an army together. <laughs> <laughs> you are not the first person to. to <laughs> and I, think that, I think that that's a good point. And I also think, again, it's nice um in that particular case that uh, both of those characters are uh, being written by um, dudes who are just having it as part of the world. Yeah. Um, I don't, Again, this is not a cookie-bearing statement. Hey, look, we're writing strong women. But I think if you check with, uh, you know, uh, in both cases, it's like it just made sense to have those characters in there. We weren't like, and now I shall plant a flag for, you know, equality. It was... I need a super cool character. Who is it going to be? It's going to be this one. Mm -hmm. um, you you mentioned you know the looking to the future and all the you know, how exciting it is to be writing right now. Um, and you know based on the 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 deal that you have with Tor, you're not going anywhere, which is good for us as readers. Um, but I wonder if you know at some point 
when you signed that, you know, it was announced a couple years ago, which for anybody listening who doesn't know, it was for 13 books over 10 years. Creatively, did you ever just sort of freeze and be like, wow, that's a lot of words? <laughs> no. Really? Um, and I'll tell you why. Uh, yeah, no, because um, in the past 10 years, uh, I mean, where, or since Old Man's War came out, uh, I have written like 17 books. Yeah. You're not counting the books that are novellas or, um, you know, or shorter than that, that have come through subterranean press. Um, so I write a lot. I mean, I wrote when I was uh, a film critic at the Fresno Bee when I first started out. I wrote eight articles a week, and all of them were on deadline. I uh, have had my blog for, I think this is year uh, 19. Um, And so when I'm not writing for money, I'm writing because I like to write. I just like to write. Um, So the output... The output's pretty congenial, actually. It's like, you know, it's like write a, you write a book a year and, and basically spend the rest of the time, you know, shooting aliens and, you know, and video games. Um, and uh, so that that wasn't my concern. And also we had, when I went in to do this deal, I came in with 13 books worth of synopses, right? Uh-huh. I was like, no matter what, I have ideas for these yeah. 13 books so we can get those, we can get those done. Um, so you're and, not staring at a blank page. Uh, no, definitely not. If, if worse comes to worse, we just go off uh, the 13 books that I listed as here. These are the ones that I want to do. Yeah. Now already we have some flexibility with that. I mean, uh, the Collapsing Empire series, because it was always thought to be a series, um, is is contracted for two books, and I need to write the second book to find this out for sure. But I have a strong suspic- suspicion that it's actually going to be a trilogy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Because I've I've introduced so many plot points and characters and so on and so forth uh, that to do them justice, uh, I think I might need I might need a third book. Uh, in which case, we'll put that in and and swap out uh, something else. Yeah. But ultimately, um, what that 13 book series means to me is um, that for the next 10 years until I'm in my mid 50s um, that I don't have to worry about whether or not uh, about selling the book I just have to focus on on writing the book and making it as good as I can be and it's also nice to know that I have a partner in tour uh, and also audible because I have an audible deal that basically mirrors the tour deal um, where they are super committed to um you know making sure that every book that i put out gets out to an audience they have to they spend a whole lot of money (laughs) they gotta make it back somehow so to get i mean to be that dedicated i mean obviously you have to love to write but like you you must have a regimen like what's your daily routine in order to, to make sure that you do stay on track to get that book a year done the the plan um and the plan should be understood to be in quotes there, is that when I'm writing a book, uh, basically from 8 o'clock in the morning until noon, I disconnect the internet uh, and I write for four straight hours uh, or until I get to 2,000 words, whichever comes first, because I'm a very fairly uh, fast writer. Um, And that's the plan, and usually it works once I get myself going. The real trouble is starting uh, because... Um, I'm very easily distractible, and particularly over the last year, 
Um, you know, if you go to the internet before you start writing, you will find something that has blown up that will just make your, uh, you know, your brain cycle away from writing creative, uh, creatively. So I really had to, um, put my ass in a chair and turn off the internet and just write. I for collapsing empire, which I was writing during the election, I literally had to go to and pull out your tiny violins. I literally had to go to Hawaii um to actually write the book because it's so far away from everything that by the time I woke up in the morning, everything that was going to go wrong in the world had already gone happened. wrong. Yeah, yeah. And there was nothing to do about it, so I might as well just go ahead and write. <laughs> and so I ended up. I was there for like eight days, and I ended up writing twenty-five thousand words. Wow. Um, simply because um, I was in paradise, and uh, it was you know the real world was far away. And my wife also said to me, "If you actually check the news, I will break your fingers." <laughs> <laughs> and she was right to do that. Um, so it's been it's been tough because of, of world events and stuff like that in the last. Uh, uh, year or so, but yeah, you absolutely have to have a process. You actually do have to sit down. You do have to write. You do have to unplug the internet because the world's going to be there when you get back. Or if it blows up while you're writing, well, then you don't have. That's one less deadline you're going to have to worry about. <laughs> so even when you have all these books planned out, do you ever still find yourself getting stuck, or is it not as much of an issue? What I find out uh, these days. Um, is not so much getting stuck as I'll start a book and I will write about twenty five or thirty thousand words and I'll be like, oh nope, those weren't the right thirty thousand words and I will check them and I will start over. And the first time that it happened, I freaked out because I was like, oh my god, what happened? Now I put myself behind schedule. Actually, that book I finished on time, but it what, but now I recognize that that is now part of my process where I spend. Uh, twenty to thirty thousand words, going in the wrong direction to figure out where where it is that I, I want to go. Um, so now, when I happen that happens, I kind of go, "Yep, that's to be expected." <laughs> I chuck it, but you know, I but I've solved a lot of problems while I'm doing while I'm doing that. Not only in the idea of what not to do, um, but a lot of the little fiddly details of world building um, have resolved themselves. So when I start over, things move. Uh, much more quickly. I mean, it happened with Collapsing Empire. I, when I started it, I wanted to have a sort of um, uh, Frank Herbert-esque tone to it because it's, you know, galaxy-spanning civilization and so on and so forth. And so I started writing not exactly like Frank Herbert, but in sort of that uh, grand style. And it was terrible. It was just <laughs> awful. And I was, as I was writing it, I'm like, no, this does, no, no, up, uh, no, this is gone <laughs> super bad. Uh, but like I said, I got a lot of world building out of it, and I also knew how not to write this particular book. Um, and so the final book, uh, I think, was a, a, a lot stronger because of it. That's interesting. You know, you're talking about the you know, the challenges that you run up against, and how your process now is just sort of you know you write a bunch of words, and if they're wrong, you chuck them and you start over, and that's just that's how you arrive at the right story. Um, sure. So we were both just on the Joko cruise, and one of the highlights of the week for me was the panel that you moderated, the writing implosions panel. Um, yeah. And so in that panel, you talked about among a lot of other things the difficulties that writers sometimes face with just getting the words on the page and the motivation sure. and the writing and the ideas. 
but what struck me yeah. is that, you know, for me sitting in the audience and for everybody else, it was an incredibly fascinating and insightful conversation. But what struck me was that it was almost therapeutic for the other writers on the panel. <laughs> how how important do you think conversations like that are among writers and, and how rare are they? Well, I mean, I think it, I think it is very important for writers to talk to other writers because um you have it's a solitary profession you're sitting in a room and you're typing um and a lot of times you will encounter difficulties or you will encounter issues not only with the writing but your career and uh how people apprehend you as a writer and you can get that feeling of is this just me am i alone in this and so when you go to talk to other writers one of the things that you learn is probably not only are you not alone but what you're experiencing is something that nearly all writers have experienced. Um, so it's really important for us to have those conversations, not just for our own sanity, um, but also because, you know, frankly, it's an opaque business. Um, it's hard to know uh, how much uh, people are making and what should be what you should be doing uh, in your contracts when asking for things. And uh, like, for example, audiobooks have just exploded in the last four or five years. I mean, it's become a truly significant portion of my income where it wasn't literally five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of the stuff you put it together, um, and if you if we are not talking about it, um, then we are not um, going to be able to make good decisions. Um, so it's super important for uh, each of us to to do that. Now, when we were on the stage having our panel, um, part of it, part of the whole point of it was to be speaking to the people in the audience and going, even these people, right. um, the people who are bestsellers, the people who have won awards, the people that you came on this cruise to you know, to see and freak out a little bit about. Mm -hmm. We still have problems. The The thing that I tell people is uh, your career and your passage in life is basically a nonstop process of exchanging uh, one set of problems for the other, right? And uh, on one sort of sense, you know, like, you know, if Patrick Rothfuss and I are griping to each other about the problems that we're having with our our TV deals. <laughs> On one sort of sense, you can go, all right, super small violin because you have TV deals, right? Right. Um, but on the other hand, for the both of us, um, this is about our livelihood. This is about somebody taking our uh, stuff uh, and transforming it into something else. And we are emotionally invested in it. Um, and we have, you know, and it is something where it's good to talk to someone else who has the same understanding as you do. Um, or the same problems as you do, uh, and figure out between the two of you if this is makes sense or or what's going on. So, um, and every step of the way, you will have a new set of problems, and it will be real problems. Um, and so, even and and I think it's important for other people who are not where uh, those people are in terms of um, you know success um, to recognize that. You know, even the uh, even the most um, you know the most accomplished of writers um, still have doubts and uncertainties and have uh, issues and aggravations, um, and that their lives are not just a nonstop parade of of accolades and happiness. Mm -hmm. um, that the job is still a job. Um, so it's good for the writers and it's good for the people who want to be writers and it's good for everybody else who doesn't know anything about our profession. Yeah, how how do you move beyond that doubt? How do you push past the self-doubt that you feel? 
I don't think you necessarily have to move beyond it. I mean, sometimes self-doubt tells you it's like sometimes when you're writing something, you're like, I don't think this is good. You know why you think that? Because sometimes you're right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, self-doubt is not necessarily something to get over. It is something to manage so that you don't let it swamp you. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a reason why one of the uh, worst things you can say about a successful author is that they've gotten too big to edit, right? Right. Uh, that that they have basically bought into their own own press releases, and there's nobody there to tell them no. Um, you know, a little bit of self self doubt, a little bit of self criticism, a little bit of you know uh, understanding that in fact you are not God's gift to the printed page um, can go a long way to making sure that what you have is worth reading not merely worth uh publishing so somebody will buy it yeah uh i i know we've run up against our time with you and we i we could easily sit here for another hour and talk to you but uh i really appreciate your time so john thank you so much thank you you're very welcome thanks for having so i'm hoping that maybe someone will sign us to a 13 year uh or whatever 13 uh, season 13 books, so, 10 years right. <laughs> deal for the great big deal. Oh, podcast. sign, sign us up for a 13. Yeah, season they're going to sign oh, yeah. us for a 13 yeah. season run. Yeah. I don't know the, who would do that, they're gonna, but they're going to throw enough money at us that we can just go full time. <laughs> man, living the dream, man, living the dream. Yeah. Living the dream. <laughs> Fanta- <laughs> fantastic interview. Sherry did a great job. Yes, and I will pass that along. I'm sure she's listening now, but thank you. Thank you. I'm sure she is. So she's probably sharing it. So, uh, do we have anything coming up, Jamie? Have we that we haven't really talked about, or any guests coming up that we haven't aired? We've got a lot of guests coming up that we haven't aired or really um, mm-hmm. talked about. I, I don't know how much we want to spoil, but That's we've true. got That's we've true. got some we've got some really good ones. Um, and depending on whatever it is you like or, you know, your where your fandoms lie, I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. We've got, you know, we've got uh, somebody who's steeped in, in the world of Star Wars. We've got um, a young adult author. We've got uh, an adult author who has a new book out and is um, pretty much the the... I don't know if he defined internet celebrity, but like he he sort of made a huge name for himself online. Um, you'll know who it is when you see it. Um, we've got comic book writers, we've got um, makers. Yeah, man, we got we got a comedian, we've got another podcaster. I mean, we've got a lot coming up, and we're really covering the range. So uh, it's it'll be good. Whatever you like, we've we've probably got something for you. And we have a with the podcaster we have is someone who started his show when we started ours, but he has an audience of millions. So just, yeah, just it's a little bit with... humbling. We'll probably mention this again on that show. He yeah. we, we started the same week, and he's like he's been in the top ten podcasts of iTunes. So it's like we're a little we're in different leagues, even though we're exactly we're the same we're age. Close. But uh, it was great. It's great to talk. We're close. We're you know we still have our dreams and aspirations. <laughs> Maybe if they release a top three thousand list, we'll be there. I'm just, self-deprecation. There you go. There you go. Self-deprecation. <laughs> all right, all right, guys. If you want to find us online, we're at the GBB Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. And I am Justin at one forty Justin C. I am Jamie at the Roarbots. We'll see you next week right here on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. See you later. Take care. 
This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdads.